pray together. Our Father, we ask that you would send us the Holy Spirit even now so that you might help this to be anything but a common moment. We might actually hear from the Lord. Our hearts might be ready. Our ears might be ready. Our minds might be ready to hear from God. We pray that if our hearts are cold, you would warm them to Christ. If they're far away, you would bring them near to Christ. If they're dead or stony, we pray that you would make them soft and alive to Christ. We pray that our uh, understanding of Christ would grow, our love for him would grow, our desire to live for him would grow, all because of this time in your word. So come, be with my mouth and your people's ears and strengthen all of that to that end. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we began sort of a short little mini-series on these two important rhythms of our lives, the rhythm of work and rest, these two things that comprise so much of who we are, work and rest. And we began last week and we said that work is good and moreover that your work matters, right? That's what we said, that work is good and that your work matters. We said that work isn't the result of sin. It's not because the world got broken that we have work, but rather, when you open the Bible, the first pages show you that God works, and that all of creation is described as the work of God, and that God created human beings in his own image and likeness, and he gave them work to do. Work is good, and your work matters. Now, if you've hung in with us for that, if you followed that, this sort of obvious follow-up question is, what about when work doesn't feel good and when work doesn't seem to matter, right? What do you do when the reality that work doesn't feel as good or as significant as you or the scriptures might say, right? Work is good. That's one thing for you to say, Ajay, but it doesn't feel that way when I'm sitting in rush hour traffic or when I'm up against that deadline or I have that boss that never gives me credit or steals credit for work that I've done. Or, or what do you do when work doesn't feel good, when I'm struggling in life to find balance, that, that I'm either good at work and lousy at home, or good at home and that makes me lousy at work, and I can't figure out the sort of perfect balance. What about when work doesn't feel good? Or moreover, it's one thing for you to say that work matters, but when I'm on that assembly line in that factory, doing that same thing over and over and over again, and the monotony sets in, and the boredom sets in, and I can't see this vision of this larger thing we're making. I've just got this one little monotonous piece to play. I'm, I'm sort of a cog in the whole thing. How does work matter then? Or moreover, for a, a mom who's gone to school and had a career and has now given up that career to be at home with the little ones, when I'm wiping the bathroom again, or I'm cutting the edges off those sandwiches for the 7,000th time, when it doesn't at all feel like I'm contributing something great to the world, where then does my work matter? What about when work doesn't feel good and when work doesn't seem to matter? I, I think for all of us, no matter what your particular job, your vocation, your calling might be, all of us struggle with the hardship of work. I mean, you just think through how we describe a work week. Today is Sunday. That means that tonight, at some point late in the evening, you're going to get that queasy feeling in your stomach because tomorrow's Monday. 
right? And we describe it even as the Monday morning blues. And if you can get past that first day, you finally make it to hump day, which is Wednesday. And if you can get over the hump, you finally get to Friday. And then we say TGIF because thank God it's Friday because all of us in all our work are working towards the weekend. That's how we describe a work week because all of us know deep in our bones that work can be difficult and frustrating. It can feel anything but good or meaningful or that it matters. So what do you do with the reality that work may have been created good, but now it feels like a pain? It's frustrating. It's hard. It's difficult. As one preacher, Mark Norman, that I heard, he described it as it can feel like it's fruitless and relentless and pointless. What do you do when work feels fruitless and relentless and pointless? So this morning, what I want to do is I want to take us back to Genesis. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn it over into page three. And I want to take you back to where we left off last week and pick up the story where we ended last week and show you why work is now so hard and how work got broken, why frustration seems almost coded, programmed into work, why difficulty and, and frustration seems to be wired into this thing, why, frankly, work doesn't work. It's like using the wrong tool to get something done. It's like trying to saw wood with a hammer or hammer wood with a saw. It's like you're set up to be frustrated in this whole enterprise called work. So why is that? Well, Genesis 3 is going to tell us why things went off the rails, why they got off track, and why work became the way that it is. Genesis 3, for many of you, will be a very familiar passage. But if you're not familiar, if you haven't read through this part, let me tell you what happens in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 1 and 2, the world is perfect. I mean, everything is perfect. Everything that could be is right. In in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates a perfect God, creates a perfect world with a perfect man and a perfect woman, and they have a perfect marriage, and they have a perfect life, and they have a perfect job and everything is perfect and that's not an exaggeration it really is genuinely this man and this woman who love one another they have no misunderstandings no struggles no tension no difficulty in their relationship they're in sync their world is in sync their job is pleasurable and enjoyable they relate to God they relate to one another everything's right and into that perfect world God says you can have everything Here's my world. Here's this garden to live in. Go at it. Have a blast. Enjoy life. Here's this one thing I need you to do. Eat anything you want. Enjoy anything you want. Do anything you want. Here's this one tree, and I don't want you to eat from that. Now, scholars have written all day about what was about that tree. And the more I've read, I think the answer is nothing. I don't know that there was anything particular about that tree. All that tree was a symbol of, here, I'm God and you're not. And your life is going to work best when you trust that I'm God and that you're not. And that your life is going to work best if you love me and trust me and obey me just because I'm God. I think that's what that tree was. It was just an opportunity to love and trust and obey God, to recognize you're God, we're not. Our life will work best if we live as you say. But then chapter 3 is the serpent comes in. The enemy of God who hates God in his ways, this serpent, as he's figured, comes in and begins to whisper to the woman. And essentially what he communicates is a lie that says God is holding out on you. 
God is holding out on you. God knows that here is the key to your fulfilled, happy life. And you've got to do it your way because God's holding out. He knows that if you eat of this, you'll become like God. You're missing out. And if you know the story, you know that she buys into the lie and eats the fruit and gives some to her husband who is standing there with her. And in that moment, everything gets shattered. I mean, this perfect world gets shattered into a million pieces. Everything gets broken. Immediately, what they do is they hide from God. Genesis, till that point, tells you that God had come daily so that they could walk together in the cool of the day. I mean, you imagine that. That first happy couple taking strolls in the garden with God. And now, they hide from God. And moreover, they hide from each other. You'll notice in Genesis, one of their instinctive first responses is to sew fig leaves together and cover themselves because now, and get this, there's parts of them that they don't want the other person to see. That's what shame is. Suddenly, now there's things about me that I don't want you to know. There's things about you you don't want me to know. And shame begins to cover their relationship. So they hide from God and they hide from each other. And their relationship with the created world, as you'll see in a moment, is broken. Everything falls off the rails. Everything gets broken. And God comes into the garden and he begins to speak to them. He says, where are you? And he begins to talk with them. And God in Genesis 3 begins to pronounce curses and judgment. He speaks first to the serpent in verses 14 and 15 says, on your belly you'll go from now on, eating the dust of the earth. And then he speaks to the woman, verse 16. This is Genesis 3, 16. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now we won't go into this much, but what I need you to just notice is it's in pain now, God says. Because of sin, it's going to be in pain that you bring forth children. I have two kids. That means I was in the delivery room twice. And I can testify that did not look pleasant. That looked like it was in pain. And some of you have had three kids and four kids and five kids. You can testify whatever that was, it was in pain, right? But, but what the text is saying is actually more than just the hours of delivery. That it's not even just in the delivery room that you'll bring forth children in pain, but that sort of the entire endeavor of raising children will be marked with pain. You get that? You'll increase your pain in child bringing, in, in raising them up, that the entire parenting experience is going to be marked with pain. Raising these little ones up is going to be marked with pain. Right? So, so when you take them to the grocery store and you're by the cereal aisle and they want the chocolate syrup, sweet frosted flakes and you say no and they collapse onto the floor and you got to pretend you don't know whose kid this is. That's because of the fall, right? Or you're in the restaurant and you never go to the restaurant anymore, right? You have kids, right? And, and you don't go because when you were single, you saw those parents with the kids and you're like, why can't they control those kids? And now you're those parents, and you sit down and you finally have that meal and you've got the fork and the knife and then she needs to go to the bathroom. Her bowels move then out of all times because of the fall, right? That's why. And it's in pain. This entire endeavor of raising these little ones is in pain. And that's what God's saying. It's going to be in pain that your home is marked now. 
And, and, and he goes on to say, your desire is going to be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And, and without getting to all of it, what he's saying is, all of a sudden, this is the onset of difficulty in homes. This is why marriage is so hard. This is why parenting is so hard. This is why sibling relationships are so hard. Suddenly, everything about the closest relationships in your life is broken. The, the husband and wife are broken. The parents and children are broken. The children and parents are broken. I mean, you just have to flip the page one chapter to see, and now what happens between two siblings. The first siblings, and one murders the other. I mean, every relationship in the closest set of relationships in your life are now broken because of the fall. It's in pain that your home is going to be marked. What you see is sin is affecting everything. Sin is affecting how I see myself. I have guilt and shame. Sin is affecting how we relate to one another. Now I, I hide from God. Sin is affecting the relationship with God. I hide from him. I hide from you. Uh, the closest relationships in your life are broken. So what you're beginning to see is sin affects everything. Sin affects everything. So then it should come as no surprise that sin affects work as well. Look at verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened, and the word there is obeyed, because you obeyed your, your wife rather than me, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten to the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Not only has sin corrupted and broken everything, now it's affected work. And the first thing I want you to see is that now, because of sin, work is painful. Because of sin, work is painful now. Work is a pain. In fact, that's what you literally heard. Verse 17, in pain you shall eat all the days of your life. Right? We, we notice that phrase. It's the same phrase in verse 16. That just like it will be in pain that she has children, now it will be in pain that you bring forth food from the earth. Right? It'll be in pain whether you're raising children and bringing them up or bringing up food. It'll be marked with pain. The home and the workplace will be marked with pain. Right? It's in pain. No, no wonder then it's almost as if both are called labor in our language. That what she goes through is labor and what work is is labor. It's through labor that she'll bring forth children. It's through labor that you'll bring forth food. That pain now marks both. In verse 19, you see, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. And, and what the text is saying is that's not how it always was. In Genesis 1 and 2, it's almost as if the garden was a place of abundance. It yielded food with no problem. It was this never-ending buffet of every kind of food you could want. But now, it's going to require long hours of arduous, back-breaking work for you to make a living, for you to eke out a survival, for you to have bread to live, right? The, the whole thing is different now. Whereas the garden once yielded abundant fruit, now it's through the sweat of your face that you'll eke out a living, that you'll make bread, that you'll survive. 
See, work was once for the glory of God and the good of others. And now the whole thing is fractured. So that now work is about just me making a living for myself and somehow trying through my work to distinguish myself from others. Work was once to the glory of God and the good of others, pleasurable and joyful. Now it's me eking out a living for myself and somehow through my work trying to distinguish myself from others. Let me read you a quote. I, I, I read something and heard something from Madonna as she was trying to describe sort of her work drive. I mean, and you think of someone who, in whatever your field, could you imagine getting to the top of your field the way that she has? And yet, from that view, would you hear what she says? She says this, I have an iron will, and all of my will has been always to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. And I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. And that always pushing me, pushing me, because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. Now, I don't know that you could say it much better than that. Because I think there's a seed of that in a lot of our hearts. That, that you get to the top only to realize it wasn't enough. And rather than work being this pleasurable, joyful thing to the glory of God and the good of others, it's this unending thing by which I'm trying to prove that I matter. That I'm distinguished from someone else. That I'm finally a, a special human being. That I've finally become somebody and then I still have to prove that that somebody is somebody. The ends of work are broken. It doesn't function the way that it was made to be. Uh, but it's worth noticing here that while work is under the curse, work itself is not cursed. Did you notice that? That work itself is not cursed. The man and the woman weren't cursed. The serpent was cursed. The man and the woman are objects of God's mercy. Likewise, the ground is cursed, but work isn't cursed. So the environment in which you carry out your callings, your vocation, your work, that is cursed. It's a place that's going to now war and work against you as you work. That's what he's saying here. It's going to be painful. Moreover, it's going to feel fruitless. Verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So here's what he's saying. You're still going to get food from the ground. Right? It's, you'll eat the plants of the field. But that food is going to grow in the midst of thorns and thistles. That the earth is going to turn hard and prickly and work against you. Adam, you're going to get food, but you're also going to get a whole bunch of things that you don't want, that you didn't plant. Things that are obstacles, things that are counterproductive, things that are unproductive, things that are going to take your time and keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Do you have any of that in your work? Things that are unproductive, things that are counterproductive, things that are frustrating and keep you from doing what you want to do. Right? Adam just wants to grow food. But now so much of his time is going to be spent on clearing weeds and pulling thorns and dealing with thistles. You, you want to do work, and yet you're going to be constantly dealing with 
counterproductive, unproductive, frustrating things about your work. I, I've talked with some of you. We experience this all the time. Some of you are doctors. You're nurses. You're in the medical profession. Your one desire is to heal, to treat people, to care for them, to help them be better. That's what you want to do. And yet, what occupies so much of your time? You deal with insurance and administrative work. You have long hours. You're constantly trying to figure out the balance between life and home and work and how to be good at all of that. And your reward for all your long hours of work and study to finally be who you are and get to do what you're doing is that you have cranky, ungrateful patients who curse you or kick you, and then you have medical malpractice on top of all of that to deal with. It's sort of marked the field now is this constant worry of being sued. Or, or, or you're a teacher. You want to teach. That's what you signed up for. You want to help students and instruct young minds. That's what you got into this for. And yet, what do you deal with? Thorns. You have troubled students and their backgrounds and their complexities. You have difficult parents. You have administrators that aren't always for you. You have a budget that is always under budget. You're always pulling out of your own pockets what you have to be able to do your own classrooms. And then on top of that, you're paid peanuts for all your work. And the thanks that you get is that people think you work nine months of the year because you have the summers off and you have an easy job. It's thorns. It's thistles that mark all work. There's sort of wired into our work frustrations. There's computers that crash and long meetings and email forwards and bureaucracy and red tape and office gossip and office politics and, and there's quotas and horrible bosses and lousy coworkers and downsizing and the threat always hovering over your head of being out of work. It's thorns and it's thistles. And hear me, most of us just imagine if I could just find the perfect job then I wouldn't have to deal with the frustrations and the difficulties and the hardships. But can I tell you what the people in those perfect jobs are saying? If I could just find the perfect job, then I wouldn't have to deal with the hardships and the frustrations and the difficulties. Because work has been wired in because of the fall with pain. But it's not only that, the text says also, now work is also unending. Not only is now work a pain, now because of sin, work is unending. That is, not only is it fruitless, but it's relentless. It never ends. It doesn't get done. It's never finished. If you've ever said, my job is killing me, I want you to know you've actually spoken more truth than you were aware of. Your job is literally killing you. That's exactly right. That's what the text says. Look at verse 19. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till when? Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Literally, the text is saying, your work will not be done until you're done. It won't get finished until you're finished. It won't end until you're ended. That literally the only thing to release you from the toil of never-ending work is death itself. That death is the one thing that's going to remove you out of the unending, relentless toil that is work. Work is relentless. Have you ever noticed that about your work? That it never gets done? That it's never finished? You do one pile of laundry. Before you put those clothes away, there's another pile to do. Right? 
in my house, Shainu says that laundry begets laundry. It's just like it's springing up always. It's never finished. It's never done. Just two weeks ago, I was driving home, and my goal for the week was to be done with my sermon by Thursday. I had other work that I needed to do on Friday. So Thursday was the day. 6.30, I'm driving home, and I'm not done. And I'm frustrated. And I've got Genesis 1 sort of rattling in my brain. And I just began to reflect how unlike God I am at the end of every day. In Genesis 1, God sets out to do something in the morning. By the end of the day, he's finished with what he intended to do. He got up that morning deciding, I'm going to make land. By the end of the day, land is done. It is good. And he goes to the end of the day done. I never have a day like that. At the end of every day is I've never finished what I wanted to do, nor got it done how I wanted to get it done. Every day is this humbling reminder that I am not God. I am so unlike you. You come to the end of every day satisfied with your finished work. We come to the end of every day with more work to do. It's relentless. I mean, right now, I wouldn't have to do month much to sort of tempt your mind to drift away for another hour. If I just brought up for you and reminded you of all the stuff that's left undone. I mean, Sundays can be so hard to sort of dial in because you've got this never-ending to-do list. There's always a house that needs to still be cleaned. There's dishes to be done. There's emails to return and phone calls to make and letters to write and projects to complete and deadlines to meet. It never gets finished. Two weeks ago, my neighbor, I live next to an elderly man, he raked his yard and my yard. I felt like such a bad person because I, ha I hadn't raked. It was just a mess. So this older man rakes his yard and my yard. So bags and bags and bags of leaves. That night, drizzling rain, wind, we woke up twice as many leaves than he had before he started cleaning. I mean, literally, two it looked two times as worse than before he started which is, by the way, why I don't rake in the first place, right? It's not because I'm lazy or that's a whole nother sermon. I mean, just, it, it never ends. And when work gets that way, not only is it relentless, it can become pointless. It can feel pointless. It, it can feel like you're that Greek guy, Sisyphus. If you've heard of Sisyphus' story, what's his curse? He's got to roll that boulder up to the top of the hill. And just when he clears the top, it rolls down. And then he's got to walk down and roll this thing back up. And then it rolls down. And for eternity, his curse is to just roll this boulder up, only to watch it go back down. Work is relentless. And when work gets that way, it can become pointless. It can feel not only fruitless and not only relentless, but pointless. I was this week sort of pointed to the letter, the, the book of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. I'm not very familiar with it, so I did a little bit of reading. Ecclesiastes is sort of an odd book because it's this philosopher, and he's trying to make a point. And the point he's trying to make is that without God, and he keeps using this phrase, life under the sun. If there's just life under the sun, he says this whole life is just meaningless. That's his word, vanity, that nothing makes sense. If there's just life under the sun, if there's no God, and he gets to that in the end of the book, then none of this means anything. In Ecclesiastes, it's this man who gives himself to getting as much knowledge as he can, as much pleasure as he can, and getting as much work done as he can. And when he's gotten as much knowledge and as much pleasure and as much work as possible, his conclusion is it's all meaningless. In fact, listen to just this section from Ecclesiastes 2. If you could, this man is living the American dream. 
Okay? I kid you not. Everything in your wildest imagination this man has. And I want you to hear his conclusion. Ecclesiastes 2. Here's what he says. Verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. Meaning I've got all the wealth you could possibly want in a lifetime. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of men. So I've gotten all the entertainment and pleasure you could possibly want in a lifetime or two. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. So not only that, everyone knows I'm the man, the king of the hill. Then he says, and also my wisdom remained with me. So this whole time, I'm still the smartest guy in the room as well. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Here's his conclusion, verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. He goes on in verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun for all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. Do you hear him? I got everything there was to get. All the wealth there was, all the pleasure there was, all the entertainment there was and a name above everyone else's. And it's meaningless. It's vanity. And not only that, I mean, I mean, you heard the same thing. Madonna saying, I'm at the top of everything there is to be the top of, and it's empty. I, I got to chase more. And he says, and not only that, even if you accomplish everything you set out to accomplish and do all that you want to do, it's all going to be handed over to someone else, and you're going to be forgotten. What's the point? It's all going to go to someone else, and you're not going to even be remembered. For example, if I were to ask you by a show of hands, how many of you know the name Charles Babbage? Okay, if I were to say by a show of hands, how many of you know the name Alan Tuning? Okay, if I were to say by a show of hands, how many of you own a computer? And Ecclesiastes' point is, you could do everything that you want. You could have the greatest accomplishment in the world that changes the world, and someday everyone's going to go, Who? Who's that? You could do everything your heart sets out to do. Work at it, he says, without a sleepless night. And at the end, somebody's going to go, who? Who's that? They won't even know your name. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes says, pointless. Not only is work feel fruitless and relentless, at the end of the day, life under the sun, it's pointless. And the only thing that Genesis says will set you free from this relentless, pointless, fruitless labor of work is death. 
that you'll eventually return to the ground, for you are dust, and from the dust you were made, and to the dust you shall return. And even there, I didn't see that till this week, a, a commentator named Alan Ross said this. He says, and even in death, you become serpent food. You remember in Genesis, the curse on the serpent is you will be on your belly and you will eat the dust of the earth. Well, the curse on the man is you're going to return to dust. And it's almost as if it's the way of saying, even in death, the serpent who got you into this whole mess has the last laugh still and rules over even your demise. Now, at this point, you're thinking to yourself, why did I come to church today? Here's why. If nothing else, it confirms everything you're feeling and tells you you're not the only one. You're not the only one that finds your labor exhausting or difficult or frustrating or wired with difficulty. It's not you. It's, it's all of our experience. This is the result of the fall. Because of sin, work is painful. It's relentless. It doesn't end. It can feel pointless. And, and you need to take that into consideration because then you'll have a realistic view of work. You won't look to work to give you what only God can give you. You'll be realistic about work. And you'll also begin to realize you could be doing exactly what God wants you to be doing. Exactly where he wants you to be doing it. In the exact job he wants you to have and still be frustrated. You don't have to keep hopping careers thinking if I just find the perfect place. Because you'll know that's not how work works. Let me read you a quote by Tim Keller. He wrote a book called Every Good Endeavor, which was wonderful and eye-opening, and I'd commend it to you. He says this. He says, just because you cannot realize your highest aspiration in work does not mean that you have chosen wrongly or are not called to your profession or that you should spend your life looking for the perfect career that is devoid of frustration. That would be a fruitless search for anyone. You should expect to be regularly frustrated in your work, even though you may be in exactly the right vocation. Did you hear that? You could be exactly where God wants you to be, doing exactly what God wants you to do, and still, it'll be frustrating, because that's the way it is now because of sin. But also, you're here in church because now you're ready for good news as well, which is because of this awful news, you're ready for good news. And the good news is, Tucked away into that section where God pronounced curses and judgments, tucked away is one verse of promise as well. As God is giving out judgment, as God is pronouncing curse on the earth, tucked away is also a verse of great promise. And here's the good news. Genesis 3.15, when he's speaking to the serpent, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Tucked away in that section is this one promise. Serpent, there is coming from the woman, from her offspring, from her seed, a child. There's a person coming from her line, and that person is one who you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And in a month, we get to celebrate the coming of that one person. That one offspring, that one seed, that one child, Jesus Christ who came into the earth to finally do to Satan what Adam couldn't and we couldn't as well. 
that Jesus Christ came into the world as this perfect man, this perfect worker, never complained on his job, never cheated his job, always did his job faithfully and well, and then, almost as if he were sucking the poison out of a snake bite, he took into himself all the poison of our sin and all that the serpent had done to us, and he redeems us from the curse. Would you, would you think through this? Because of disobedience came into the world the curse. And yet Galatians tells us that Jesus Christ came and become God's curse for us so that he might redeem us from the curse because he hung on the cross as a cursed man for us. Or as a, a famous Puritan, Matthew Henry said, would you think through this? Because of disobedience came thorns. But then would you see Jesus and see the thorns being pressed down on his brow? Because of disobedience in that garden came sweat. But would you see your Savior in a garden, sweating drops of blood, begging God if he could not go in tomorrow? Because of sin and disobedience came painful work that led to death. Would you see then your Savior hanging on a cross, doing the job that the Father had given him and dying to get that job done so that he could finish his work and say, it is finished. The work the Father gave me is done. Because of disobedience came into the world that man would be put into the ground and returned to dust, ruled over by the serpent. Would you see then Jesus being lowered from the cross and put into the ground. Except there would you see the one person who doesn't become serpent food. Because on the third day he rises again. He rises from the ground. His body, the psalmist says, does not see decay. And he spits out the poison as it were. And all of us now have life in him. Would you see the one who redeemed you. And redeemed your work even through his work. So that when you come to your next difficult, frustrating, painful day, when you struggle with the fact that the world doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, would you look to Jesus? When you go, I can't go in one more day to this job, would you hear the Savior in the garden asking the Father if he doesn't have to go in tomorrow and does so anyway for your sake? When you're struggling because you're underpaid or underappreciated or treated poorly or unjustly, would you look to the cross and see a Savior who knows exactly what it's like to be underappreciated, to be treated poorly or unjustly? When you can't go on one more moment, would you see a Savior who sympathizes with you on your hardest day of work or in your worst season in your job and see his hardest day at work for you? Would you see a God who, because of love for God and love for others, worked the hardest job there was to work? And would you let that move you to work for him in response? Not work for him as in you're working your way to get to God. No, he already did the work to get to you. But rather, because of his work, would you now see your work as unto him, as a way to glorify God and serve others? As you go from here, I want you to know Monday morning will still be hard. You've heard the sermon, Wednesday will still be difficult to get through. You'll still have weeks where you long for Friday, but would you hear this? That's because the story's not done yet. 
We're in act three. There's one more act to come. There's creation where everything was good and work was good. There's the fall where everything went bad and work got broken. There's redemption where Jesus died and his work redeemed our work. But there's one more act to come. There's restoration where there will be a new heaven and a new earth and all our work will be renewed and we will gladly with pleasure and joy do things to glorify God and serve one another. And in that renewed world, nothing will be as it is here. We were reading Romans 8 in our family devotion last night, and we were talking through how creation itself, Romans 8 says, is longing and groaning for the day when it will be out from under the bondage of sin. And there will be no more thorns, and work will finally work. Would you consider that? Would you let that day shape how you live this day? I almost convinced Sibby to be able to sing a Christmas song today. I couldn't get him to do it, but in a month, you'll sing with me. You know what we'll sing? We'll sing, joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. And then we'll sing, no more let sin or sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found, far as, far as, far as the curse is found. Let's pray together.